from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Tyson's meaty new sustainability agenda, what's driving public-private partnerships for smart cities, avoiding the next Cape Town drought, and the MacGyver of Waste Management at GM. But I thought MacGyver drove a Jeep. Oh well. This week on 350. It's March 2nd, 2018. Welcome to Green Biz 350. Joining me as always is Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. I'm still laughing from your last joke. Oh, well. <laughs> you know, MacGyver had actually four different vehicles. I looked it up, but most of them were Jeeps and Chryslers. All due respect to our good friends at GM. Um, that, but this guy is who, who you're going to interview on this show uh, is... Uh, Bio he calls him the MacGyver of waste management, so uh, that's a beautiful thing. MacGyver, of course, the reference is that this is the the guy who could sort of do anything with anything, duct tape and uh, paper clip and a lot of uh, bubble gum and a lot of ingenuity. So we'll see what that's about when it comes to helping GM get to its zero waste goals, which it's been doing for a long time. So look forward to that clip. Um, and uh, lots going on. My God, it's the the craziness at GreenBiz is 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 exciting, it's uh it's refreshing and it's also kind of crazy. First of all, a shout out to one of our esteemed colleagues, Ellie Beekner, uh, who has been our conference director, has been with us for eight years and runs our events business just named Vice President for Events. Congratulations, Ellie. We're so excited and proud to have you continuing to rise up. I'm in awe of what she does on site and beforehand. It's amazing. But the other part of the equation is that we're growing. Uh, we're, we've got uh, uh, six, count them, six job openings uh, right now uh, that you can go to. If you go to greenbiz.com slash greenbiz hyphen careers, uh, we'll link to that from the webpage for this week's uh, episode of the podcast. You can see the job descriptions linked to the, uh, the fuller descriptions, applications, and everything else. So lots going on. One of them's in our very own editorial department, another's just next door in the graphic design production assistant, another will be a first cousin of ours in the energy program, um, and then the, a few in the, on the marketing and sales side. So exciting times at GreenBiz. Exciting indeed, and we have a, an exciting new hot, uh, person starting next week, and, and we'll, 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 we're going to just tease you right now, but we'll introduce her next week. We are so psyched about the newest member of the GreenBiz editorial team, a, a, a genuine rock star. I can't remember if it's drums or bass that she plays, but anyway, we'll get to that next week. We'll have her on the program. And... Um, also, you're getting ready for another trip. Um, where are you going? Another trip. Well, you just like well, you just well, went snowboarding or somewhere. Something. Oh, right, or, yeah, right, yeah, right. Yeah. That was a a, a weekend uh, weekend getaway. I get a it. A weekend getaway. Yes, I will be diving in the uh, lovely uh, island of Rotan, which is off Honduras. I'll be go there, going there for my third time. It's a, a tremendously wonderful um, reef system, and uh, we we keep 
my husband and I have discovered a couple of places that we really appreciate and uh, keep going back at this point. Um, he, he said he would never repeat, but now he's, he's going there for the third time. So it's uh, exciting, and I get to um, spend some time down under. So nice. Can't wait to hear about it. That's next week, but let's talk about this week in review. So let's start off with this situation going on in Cape Town, South Africa. I mean, it, it, it doesn't get as much play as it could and arguably should in any media, mainstream sustainability. But I mean, the, the short version is that uh, Cape Town is rapidly approaching what they uh, are it's called day zero when basically, basically they're running out of water. And uh, this is something that uh, is tragic, uh, potentially in the making. Uh, there just simply is no water. And, and we have two articles this week about it. One, uh, looking a little retrospectively of what could have prevented uh, the Cape Town water crisis and the the answer, at least from uh, Shuba Kumar, uh, who's assistant professor uh, clinical preventive medicine at the University of Southern California, writes, is SROI, which is the social return on investment. Now, I happen to know a little bit about SROI because I was involved with a business plan uh, competition where SROI is is part of that. A lot of the SROI came out of uh, the University of California, the Haas School there 10 or so years ago. But uh, Professor Kumar is, is basically saying that, that SROI analysis, which considers the social impacts on residents and agricultural operators, in this case around water, as well as the environmental implications uh, and the economic cost, by putting that together, you you create policies and programs uh, and engage all the affected stakeholders, residents, farmers, nonprofit groups, governments, businesses, et cetera, that could ward off these kinds of, of problems in the future, even, I, I guess, in a climate-constrained world. Yeah. I just, this, I have to echo your you know, your consternation about the fact that we don't know much about this here. And here in the United States, I, I, I bet you if I asked any of my friends, they wouldn't have the clue that this is even going on. Cape Town did try to avert some of these things. Um, they, they proposed a drought charge, but that really, you know, angered the residents, right? Uh, so they had to kind of step back, back and, and look at having tariffs for excess water consumption. And how do you, how do you, in disincent, if you will, um, people not to use too much water. Um, how do you uh, plan for this? So I, I, I think they're saying it, it was that they were originally saying that this city would run out of water in May. I think the new um, date they're looking at is July, I believe. But Will Sarney, uh, our, our, our intrepid uh, liquid assets columnist, he also weighs in on this issue this week um, and, and talks about the, the private sector responsibility, right? So it's not just on the Cape Town folks to do this SROI, this social thing that, that you need. I mean, I guess the point is that you need to have many different um, members of the community involved in that social return on investment analysis. And how do you do that? Uh, Will suggests that um, the private sector should be much more Closely involved in the stewardship, you know. What what do you what are your thoughts on that? I think we've we've uh, been 
writing about this issue um, for some time, but maybe it's now, maybe is the time that this is going to finally click in people's heads. Yeah, well, what Will writes about, uh, along with um, uh, David Chandler, who's an assistant professor of management at the University of, of Colorado, that this is really, the Cape Town story is really a story about the failure and how the public sector manages water and that it's usually based on poor data and information and inadequate engagement with the public, the residents who, who use the water, um, and a belief that what's happened in the past is the way the world's going to work in the future. And so, in other words, water is too often taken as a treated as a taken-for-granted asset rather than as a strategic resource and, and, and a social well uh, ben benefit as well. Um, and so Will points out that where water is viewed strategically, uh, and he names Israel and Singapore as, as two examples, water scarcity and stress don't limit economic development or business growth, presumably at the same time that it also doesn't constrain residents quite as much. And so uh, there's, uh, he, he talks about some of the ways that this can be averted and, and how the shared responsibility of, for water um, is, is, needs to be taken in, again, through, through public-private partnerships. And, and by the way, before we get off this topic, I think it's really important to point out that while Cape Town may have the unenviable situation of being the first major city in, in modern history to face the threat of completely running out of water, it's only one of a dozen cities in that situation. The BBC ran a piece last month, early February, naming the 11 cities most likely to run out of water. And, you know, number one is Sao Paulo, number two, Bangalore, then you have Beijing, Cairo, Jakarta, Moscow, Istanbul, Mexico City, London, Tokyo, and number 11, Miami, Florida. Miami, Florida, yep. yeah. And so... Um, you know, this is, uh, you know, just to mix metaphors, the canary in the coal mine, that what's going to be happening and what is happening now in Cape Town and the way they get themselves uh, through this is going to be a marker for, for how we deal with these things um, that are going to become, unfortunately, a little too common. Well, let's move from water to food. Uh, another story we ran uh, this week is on burgers. Uh, for which you need a goodly amount of water to produce. But uh, some of those impacts of producing burgers and beef in general uh, are being mitigated by the rise of plant-based meat substitutes. And um, we had a report from Anya Hollemeiser last week, uh, uh, an interview from uh, Just Foods, which is the formerly uh, Hampton Creek, uh, one of a number of companies that are making eggs without uh, chickens or, or beef without cows and, and a whole bunch of other things like that. The piece this week that we ran is uh, from the World Resources Institute and looking at, at what happens when uh, uh, particularly beef mushroom burgers, in other words, blended burgers, blending plant-based foods into meat-based dishes uh, is one way to sort of gradually shift mainstream consumers' diets without necessarily requiring big lifestyle changes, which just seems to be the only way we can get anything done, while making them healthier for people, fewer saturated fats and calories, and, and a, a lot lower um, uh, environmental impact. 
Yeah, so the specific ratio they're using is they're suggesting, based on a couple of um, programs that are going on from Sedesco and from Sonic Burger, of all places, um, these companies are putting about, you're replacing about 30% of the beef in some of their recipes with mushrooms of different sorts. And the idea is that that will help, you know, offset in, in, in this particular instance, um, they're basing this on American consumption, right? So Americans eat about $10 billion, $10 billion, 10 billion burgers each year. Replacing 30% of that beef with mushrooms could reduce the agricultural production-related greenhouse gas emissions by 10.5 million tons, um, which is basically the equivalent of taking the entire county of San Diego and making it go carless. Um, they also talk about the water um, implications. So reduce irrigation water demand by 83 billion gallons per year. So there's some really specific benefits, if you will, of doing this. And uh, so Sedesco is the big food services company. They deal with lots of corporate and uh, you know food service operations at schools and so forth, right, and campuses around the, the country. And Sonic Burger being the, the, uh, the chain. So they're both experimenting and there's a, a sort of a movement, if you will, the Culinary Institute is even talking about this and, and, and teaching, right? So if, that's a great strategy. If you start teaching chefs and, and future chefs to do this and you kind of get it into the, the, the psyche and, and into the, the processes and kitchens around the world. So it's just a, a really uh, intriguing, thought-provoking story about, you know, how to do this in maybe a, a more subtle, subtle way um, than some some of the people that are going all the way with plant-based burgers. Um, and this is, a, this is a good first step. Yeah, sort of the uh, meat eaters version of a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. Uh, and one of the things I like, though, that Richard Waite and Daniel Venard from WRI wrote on this is that uh, they said that blended burgers is a sustainability strategy that could sit alongside renewable energy, energy efficiency, water efficiency, and waste reduction packaging kinds of measures. Um, and so it just fits in as, as yet another thing. It's not the magic bullet. What I liked about this is that they say the, the beef mushroom blended burger, it's not quite the marketing term that anyone will use likely, but the this blended burger uh, also appears not to increase costs for food service operators like Sodexo or uh, uh, Sonic Burgers, that uh, that this is something that, uh, you know, can be done cost-effectively and profitably, and and actually will you know will depend a lot on how this affects meal production time and and necessary additional chef training and all that. But uh, I like this, and um, I imagine we'll be seeing this at a drive-in near us. So, last piece I want to talk about this week is it's such a great, great topic, and it comes to us from Allison Taylor, who's managing director at BSR. The headline is Sustainability, Change Leadership, and Collaboration, From the Why to the How. What's so great about this piece is that sustainability leadership inside companies is really about change management. And we don't talk about that. We say, oh, it's about you know, energy and water and waste and, and, and communications and metrics and all that. But it really is about change. And change, as we all know, is hard. People like the idea of it. But doing it is harder. As I love to say, they, uh, when it comes to change, people love the noun and hate the verb. Um, and uh, in the surveys that, that BSR and GlobeScan conducted of 250 companies, 
it's part of a, an annual thing on the state of sustainable business. And along with the 50 interviews they did with sustainability leaders uh, to understand a whole bunch of issues, they, 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 they saw that sustainability was seen as a top priority by CEOs, but that sustainability teams frequently feel isolated and lack both resources and power. I mean, that's what our Green Biz Executive Network conversations are all about. And boy, is that true. And so how we get through this is, is going to be important to how companies ultimately take on the sustainability challenge. And I always, uh, and I, I, I know change management, you know, at an existing organization is super hard. I've been there, been there, done that myself um, with, with editorial operations. And I so personally believe that one of the best ways to, to get at this, and not tomorrow necessarily, but maybe five to ten years from now, is that you, this is what's taught, right? So the, we need to embed this discipline more uh, explicitly it, almost actually explicitly and implicitly into the business management um, programs that we've that we're seeing. So it should be different. It should be just a basic part of of how um, managers are taught to manage their operations, to look at their operations, the lens at which um, which they are used to sort of base quote success end quote. And I always I, the one when I. I in my former life, when I covered really channel programs for technology companies, one of the best ways to inspire change is to compensate people. So if if business leaders start looking at compensating the managers around their company for for the sustainability metrics that we need and want, then you're going to start seeing this change. Um, you know, that's <laughs> so money, right? So money, make it part of the, the the compensation equation, but also make it just part of the the basic um, management skill set that you expect. Um, so that's not something you can necessarily flip a switch on and then um, change overnight, but it, 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 it's, I guess it, it requires patience and persistence. I mean, this stuff really kicks in when you change the comp package of CEOs to include sustainability metrics too. Then all of a sudden you've got their attention, you've got to push this down too, and, and, and you'll need to empower the sustainability teams. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the key here though, and I think the point of Allison's piece is is we need to be paying a lot more attention to the role of change management in uh, sustainability. She said that when when BSR and GlobeScan asked uh, respondents what skills are most necessary for their roles, she said we were surprised just how many people came back with the same simple answer, change management. And she quotes one of the interviewees saying, most of the sustainability team's job is more about organizational change than about subject matter expertise. To engage the executive executive committee, we tailor language and shape messages for each. And, and this person says, I also use external voices and pressures to move lines. So in other words, sustainability executives are finding ways to uh, down that path to talk to different parts of the organization in their own language and to bring in the external voices. But... Uh, learning how change works in an organization, and of course it works differently in every organization, is going to be a really critical part of effectiveness for sustainability execs going forward.
Former McKinsey consultant Justin Whitmore was on the job as the first chief sustainability officer of Tyson Foods just one month when he disclosed his team's intention to set science-based targets for cutting greenhouse gas emissions and to embrace, quote, outcome-based water conservation goals. In late February, Tyson partially delivered on that promise with an ambitious commitment to trim North American emissions by 30% by the year 2030. The company also launched a new innovation lab in Chicago, its first project, researching ways to reduce food waste by using meat scraps that are usually discarded in production as part of a new snack line called Yapa. This week, I spoke with Justin about several of his priorities. Here's that interview. So thanks for joining us. Um, Why did Tyson embrace the concept of science-based targets? Yeah, and thanks for having me. Um, so, you know, a couple of things. Last year, uh, we announced a, a deeper commitment to a more sustainable food system. And, uh, you know, you hate to get involved in uh, what people might view as corporate speak at times, but we've established a purpose to raise the world's expectations for how much good food can do for Tyson Foods, which just implies so much as it relates to our role in leading on sustainability. And so with that, um, and our belief in protecting the environment, conserving natural resources, maintaining clean air and water uh, in the lands and communities we operate in, we knew we had to set bold public commitments that could align our internal focus and how we're thinking about investment with uh, what we're saying externally in a way that's tangible and real and powerful and aspirational. And so that's where the the targets came from. It, It really came from helping communicate to our consumers and customers what Tyson is going to be all about as it relates to sustainability. So you've now announced your intentions with respect to greenhouse gas emissions reductions, um, scope one, two, and three, um, different, uh, different slices of a 30% aspiration. How will you ensure accountability? So, you know, let, let, there's probably a few things to talk about there. Uh, the first is... Um, we will have to work internally with our leadership team and with our uh, internal team members on making these targets and goals uh, real uh, for them. And that's a part of building in incentives and making sure how we execute all of our capital investment is connected to the outcomes of reducing greenhouse gases. So that's, that's one. Uh, two, uh, we're making our company accountable by making these uh, commitments publicly or these, these setting these goals publicly and working with uh, a group like WRI and, and others uh, around science-based targets, which helps ensure company accountability. And then finally, we'll, we'll track and report our progress annually uh, via our sustainability report that we publish and also uh, working with groups like CDP, which uh, is formerly the Carbon Disclosure Project, on tracking our progress. So there's a you know, host of things that we'll do to ensure accountability and make sure that we're progressing towards our, our aspirations. Now, you have said that more targets are coming, more different um, goals, targets, etc., In particular, I'm wondering how will Tyson Foods prioritize water conservation? Yeah, it's a great question. And and more will be coming uh, as we we work through our our process. And uh, water is is critical, both for our operations and, and frankly, uh, for the world. And conserving water 
will be a, a big part of what we talk about and where we focus uh, as a company. And, and like I said, we will um, start talking about further goals uh, publicly. One thing to note is we actually have already announced that we plan to reduce the amount of water used to produce each pound of product that we make by 12% by the end of 2020. And that's something that's already out there that we've been pursuing and uh, reporting on. And, and frankly, a lot of people don't know about. Uh, the second thing, though, that we're doing, which is exciting, is we're also collaborating with the World Resources Institute on long-term, context-based water targets. And this will help us reduce water in our supply chain in the areas where there's the most need and the most opportunity, which is exciting. But the work's ongoing, and, and you can expect more uh, over the coming months on that. Now, as a food company, your your sustainability plan obviously has to include ensuring a stable supply of protein <laughs> as the world's population swells. So um, you have a special accountability there. How is Tyson addressing issues such as food waste um, and the, the, the need and interest in alternative proteins? Yeah, so there's a couple of things there that are interesting uh, that's going on at Tyson. So we have a, a group called Tyson Ventures, which is a venture capital arm that we started last year that focuses on a couple of areas. Sustainability, so think about companies that are solving for issues like food waste, food security, food deserts, uh, companies that are developing alternative protein products. We also invest in something called the Internet of Food, which is what we call it internally, which is big data technology in our supply chain that can, ensure, that can improve traceability, that can create different experiences for consumers. And so that first focus area that I spoke about, sustainability, uh, we actually have invested in a couple of alternative protein companies. Um, one is Beyond Meat, which is a veg-based protein company, and the other is Memphis Meats, which is a, a cultured or lab-grown uh, own uh, meat company. And uh, both of those investments uh, kind of signal a few things. One is as consumer tastes evolve, um, we will evolve our approach to investment. Uh, we absolutely think that, uh, you know, uh, the protein from chicken and beef and pork and turkey will continue to be a staple in people's uh, uh, eating or in their menus. Uh, but also alternative proteins, veg-based proteins, will start to emerge as well, and, and that's why we're investing in those companies. And we think there's an opportunity potentially from a sustainability perspective. We'll have to see how things develop, what the research and the, the impact is of those businesses, but there's an opportunity to, to rethink the food system with some of the, those companies as well, which is exciting. Yeah, I did, uh, yeah, I did know. I did see that you, you um, introduced something called, what is it, the Innovation Lab? Yeah, that's what I was just going to get into, so I'm glad you brought that up. So the Tyson Innovation Lab is a second part uh, of this story. Now, we have a long-standing R&D and innovation team that has extraordinary capability, extraordinary skill sets. Uh, but what we did, and this happened in our prepared foods business, is they carved out a set of designers, chefs, scientists, supply chain experts in a dedicated space in Chicago, and they basically – get tasked with a challenge, in this case, wasted food, and they have to go from six in six months from idea to in-market solution. And in the first cycle, um, they have developed a, a product that we're calling uh, Yapa, 
And, and this is uh, focused on using what goes in unused in the food supply chain, the ingredient, along with ingredients, and it's a cool line of protein snacks. Uh, and, and I'm excited to see more about where this goes as we, we start thinking about how we scale this and bring it to market. And from a sustainability perspective, getting even better on how we think about wasted food and, and creating more uh, with less, which is exactly what our, our work's all about. Well, I know you've been there less than a year, so good on you for, <laughs> for this work so far, and I uh, look forward to talking to you in the future. Justin, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. This week, Johnson Controls published the Smart City Indicator, a study based on surveying more than 150 public sector leaders in 12 countries to track some of the drivers, barriers, trends, and the status of smart city initiatives around the world. Among other things, the study found that there are lots of smart city initiatives, but very few published plans. In fact, while 90% of the organizations surveyed claimed to have smart city initiatives underway, only 7% of those are implementing a published strategic program of initiatives. I tracked down Clay Nestler, Vice President of Global Energy and Sustainability Initiatives at Johnson Controls, to learn a little bit more. Hey, Clay. Hi, Joel. So there seems to be no end of research and reports on smart cities, and this is a new report for Johnson Controls. Why another report on smart cities? Well, as you know, um, we have had a global survey on energy efficiency and renewable energy uh, investments in buildings for 11 years. And um, a lot of the um, organizations that we've surveyed around the world are actually public sector organizations, city government, state government, and, and national. And the types of questions that we've been asking in the energy efficiency indicator, what are the drivers for investment? What are the key barriers? Um, what did you invest in last year? What are you planning to invest in next year? While there have been a lot of study and a lot of interest in smart cities, it's, it's tended to be a little bit of, of a technology focus, um, a series of reports on broadband communications, a series of reports on smart street lighting and things like that. We wanted to use the same approach that we've successfully used for 11 years and apply it across all of the technologies and applications in the municipal space. So it was our first year this year, and the results are pretty interesting. So smart city seems to be one of those terms that uh, everyone's using. Is there actually a definition or, or, or agreement about what that means? What definition did you use in your survey? We actually didn't propose a definition in the survey. Um, um, smart city is, is what I like to refer to as a Rorschach term. People hear that word and they see totally different images. We really believe that, that cities and their communities have goals and objectives, things they want to accomplish. They want to provide healthy environments for the community. They want economic development. They want wellness for, for their, their, their population but that technology can be a key enabler. So we tend to think of it as what are the desired outcomes you want to deliver for your community, the businesses, those that live, work, and play there, and what technology can do to do those things in better ways. It relates to urban efficiency, which would be resource efficiency, operational efficiency, uh, economic efficiency. It would um, involve connected infrastructure, 
um, everything from buildings to uh, energy and, and water and infrastructure like that, as well as providing new services to the community through digital means. So we didn't pick a, a, a definition and try to defend it. We asked a lot of questions to understand what cities really felt smart cities meant for them. What's driving these initiatives? Um, I imagine it's not sustainability per se, um, but what, what seems to be the key drivers and equally important, who's paying for them? Yeah, so two great questions that we happen to ask. And um, if you look at the global results, which are from 12 countries around the world, um, large ones and some not so large ones, the, the key drivers um, for investments in smart cities um, number one was economic development on a global basis. Number two were, was environmental issues, including air and water quality. And number three was, in fact, sustainability, Joel. So, so that, that ranked very, very high among the dozen or some odd drivers that we um, surveyed. Now, if you just look at the North American slice of U.S. and Canada, the results are a little bit different. It's, it's a bit more technology-oriented. The number one driver of investment in North America is actually communications infrastructure. So bringing broadband connectivity and communications to homeowners, residents, businesses, um, and city government. Number two is actually public safety. And then number three was, in fact, sustainability as well. So a little different um, priority in North America than the other uh, 10 countries that we have surveyed. And who's paying for it is really a good question. One of the key themes we saw is that there's a lot more planning than pilots, and there are a lot more pilots than projects. And, and the reason there are so many pilots is the number one source of funding is actually grants from state and federal governments. And these grants tend to be relatively small compared to the amount of investment one would need to fully deploy and implement a certain smart city application or technology, but 57% um, are using state and federal uh, funds to uh, do that. Number one in the United States is very different, though. It is the, the, the only country where public-private partnerships are the um, primary way of paying for smart city projects, and they are achieving more scale. They're getting greater levels of implementation and a broader range of applications, at least piloted. So very different means of funding, whether you're sort of in emerging economies versus um, the U.S. and Canada. So I imagine the public-private partnerships um, are sort of resemble kind of the ESCO models of, uh, that have been around for several decades where someone is fronting the cost of this and then getting a, a percentage of the savings. Is, is that the model we're talking about? There's a number of different models. Um, the, the, the one which is increasingly being used is, is, is literally called the public-private partnership, or P3 for short. And that is literally um, private ownership of public infrastructure. A special purpose entity is created. Private sector funds are applied. Um, they build, whether it is a building, whether it is a road, um, whether it is a bridge or, or a, a residence uh, in a university, and it is actually uh, built, and the public entity then basically pays for the service or the use of that over time. And it's a way of using private capital and the power of the private sector to uh, uh, design, build, and operate. These are interesting projects. Um, 
the contracts extend for, in some cases, 20 to 30 years. We've been involved uh, as Johnson Controls in a number of the first public-private partnership projects in the United States, Long Beach Courthouse, the Convention Center, and most recently UC Merced um, um, at the University of California campus has uh, completed some building construction using that model. Energy savings performance contracting, yes, Lighting, LED lighting is one of the most popular applications in the survey, and, and lighting as a service essentially allows you to pay for the installation of the LED lighting infrastructure through the energy and maintenance savings of the uh, tech and not analogy. So that's a key trend driving greater adoption and scale. Yeah. So I imagine you're going to be doing this survey um, every, every couple of years or so. Uh, I'm wondering when you next do the smart city indicator uh, project, uh, what kind of changes are you hoping to see? Well, hoping to see. Um, I, we think that, that these initiatives will only be successful when they reach scale. And so um, our, our thesis is that we need to move essentially cities around the world uh, in the direction of their desired goals and objectives and outcomes, whether that be sustainability, whether it be public safety, whether it be greater community services, economic development, wh whatever, we need to go from planning to pilots. That's the first stage. Then we need to go from pilots to projects. And then if we really want to achieve scale, we need to go from projects to partnerships. And what I described in the P3 model is essentially a public-private partnership to deliver infrastructure high-performance infrastructure. These, these projects are among the most efficient and sustainable buildings around because the team that builds them actually reaps the benefits of energy and operational savings. So I think that is what we're going to want to see over time is we're going to want to see cities making that evolution towards uh, true collaborative partnerships. Well, there's no end of business opportunities here. Um, Clay Nestler is Vice President of Global Energy and Sustainability Initiatives at Johnson Controls, talking about the newly published Smart City Indicator. Thanks so much, Clay. Thank you, Joel. General Motors this week disclosed that all of its manufacturing plants in Canada, Mexico, and South America have reached landfill-free status. That brings its total to an impressive 142 facilities globally, more than any other automaker. Getting there has required the company to embrace dozens of new, unconventional processes for recycling, reusing, and composting waste. The man in charge of those programs is John Bradburn. His official title is Global Manager of Waste Reduction, but internally John is known as GM's MacGyver because of all the unconventional and circular uses he has devised for everyday waste. John joins us today to share some of his secrets. John, welcome to GreenBiz 350. Thanks, Heather. appreciate being here and sharing the news. Great. So uh, the first thing I'm wondering is how much of your landfill-free strategy is driven at the local level? I know you have a global title, but how much of this is locally driven? A lot of our strategies do come from the plants or on a local level because they know uh, the materials that are being generated there, and they, they're quite innovative themselves. They come up with ideas working with the local infrastructure, maybe even developing it. 
So these ideas come about from many angles, many sources, corporate level, of course, yeah, but also locally. And uh, they also come from the outside. Our suppliers are very important in this sort of thing as well. So I want to get into some of those ideas in a moment, but um, while we're sticking with this, so they're driven at the local level, but how are ideas shared? Is there some internal process that you use for sharing the ideas? Absolutely. We share our ideas uh, internally through forums, uh, regular calls, sustainability calls that we have every month from all of our plants. Uh, We share it through data and uh, electronic exchange of ideas best practices, that sort of thing. But we also feel very strongly about sharing ideas to others outside uh, the company, uh, other sectors. That's very significant because um, some of these challenges need to go cross-sector in that collaboration. Say, for instance, from the auto industry to the building industry. How do we take a material such as a fleece, for instance, which is a PET fiber water bottle derived actually fiber, Um, and make a vehicle part, but why don't we use it in terms of an insulation for buildings? And and we're working on that very thing as well. So, you know, that sort of idea sharing, that sort of collaboration inside our plants, inside amongst our engineers and outside is what's key and significant because as GM moves forward, uh, we want to maintain that level of communication because alone one can be good, but together we can be great. So I want to hear about some of these ideas. I'm curious, what are some of the most unique yet effective programs that GM has developed for its waste management process? Well, there's, there's several projects we've done over the years, uh, you know, and I, I would like to note this one. Uh, and that was, I think, a call to action relative to us getting involved externally during the Gulf of Mexico oil spill. Uh, the crew gushing up from the bottom of the Gulf and what can be done about it. What we did was we put together a small team and we developed a vehicle part made out of the used oil boom that was used to clean up the Gulf spill. Um, And we combined that material with uh, materials from our plants, Uh, caps and plugs. We call them packaging aids, which are various plastic types. Tires from our Milford Proving Ground were incorporated into this part. It was a baffle for the Chevy Volt for the 2010, 2011, and 2012, and 25% of it contained those used oil boom as well as some post-consumer plastics. Um, We also worked with a company to develop a cardboard part, we call it, Uh, but it was Federal Mogul, and that company uh, worked with us in their R&D department to develop a packaging cardboard-sourced material, in other words, our cardboard out of our plants, uh, combine it with a post-industrial polyester fiber and created a, a, a an insulator for the headliner of the Buick LaCrosse and uh, and and, and the Buick uh, product line. And it was just a very interesting project, I think, how on, on upcycling, bio-based materials, and again, collaborating with others. So there's many more. And this goes well beyond the traditional recycling. So here, so let me ask you about some of the simplest things you've done. Some of the simple projects that we've done are our baseline. They are kind of our backbone of the projects themselves. That's that's traditional recycling. So, for instance, in our Oshawa Ontario plant, which uh, became landfill-free this last year, and it's an amazing facility, a great team, um, there were recycling uh, studies done, and they knew where they needed to put the containers. 
identify them, label them, common color codes, that sort of thing, and then enlist all the folks, get them all enthused to, you know, to pitch in and get that material collected so they can become landfill free. The entire site is landfill free. There's a few operations there, and uh, that's kind of where the work starts um, on on that level. And then from there, they're going to grow it. They're, in fact, working to take some of the water bottles, for instance, and have those processed into vehicle parts. So it's an evolution. Zero waste, or we call it landfill free, it's the same thing, is a benchmark. It's a great barometer to aspire to. Once a company or an operation or facility is there, the next steps are very important as well to keep the momentum going, finding the most sustainable use for those particular materials to keep them in the use phase, gain value, and to take care of certain ecological and societal needs. So you mentioned that suppliers have been instrumental in helping you develop um, some of these ideas, and you've already mentioned at least one one program. Um, what what other re- what resources have been most useful to you, outside or internally? Um, the resources that we utilize are both internal and external, probably on an equal basis. Uh, our suppliers are very important to us as, as well as um, nonprofits, um, you know, our NGOs, governmental agencies, uh, you name it, ideas uh, and, and support comes in, in many ways. We're also part of collaborative groups such as Suppliers Partnership for the Environment, which is an auto-based Um, group that gets together and talks and does projects relative to sustainability. Uh, Those sort of forums come into play where these, uh, again, projects and programs can be deployed amongst the supply base because obviously, uh, you know, being a manufacturer, um, our supply base uh, weighs in and can uh, impact things favorably as well. We're also members of the U.S. Business Council for Sustainable Development, whereby cross-sector collaboration is key there. Uh, I mentioned the building industry before, um, you know, but what about the apparel industry? Uh, other industries, those all can benefit by working together. And an example of that was recent work we did with our water bottles out of our plants and in Flint um, that were generated in Flint because of the water quality issues they've experienced in the last couple of years and take some of those water bottles to do some good, uh, to create products uh, to to have products such as air filters made in Flint from Flint water bottles. Or I mentioned the apparel industry. We've uh, worked with a wonderful organization in Detroit called the Empowerment Plan, where they make coats for the homeless. And we supplied insulation for those coats from water bottles, from Flint as well as our plants. So it is that cross-sector uh, supplier base and really uh, – everybody coming together for a common cause, and that is to make our world a better place. So you just reached a great milestone, an impressive milestone. What's next? We continue to evolve more in the direction of what I call sustainable materials management. The Landfill Free Program is a portion of that. It's a significant benchmark, as I had mentioned, but our goal really is to keep looking at those options. So out of all those 142 landfill-free operations, they're not done. They know that, and our other plants are all aspiring to use materials they generate in the absolute best way to help all sorts of concerns and issues around our world, including local community issues. So, for instance, 
if if uh, a landfill-free plant finds a better use for a material, such as steel baskets or part containers coming in from Korea into our Orion, Michigan plant, uh, where we're doing the Chevrolet Bolt, we're making the Chevrolet Bolt there, those baskets could be sent to a foundry and melted and the steel reclaimed. That's good, but it's not great. A sustainable materials management strategy should include what we've done, and that is to utilize those baskets to better the community near where they're generated. So we shipped around 1,500 of those so far into Detroit, and they've contributed to the urban gardens. They work perfect for urban gardens, and we've uh, contributed about 30-plus urban farms in Detroit that serves challenged communities and others uh, fresh food, and it involves children, it involves school uh, schools and other groups that need to really uh, show our young people how these things are so very important. They can connect to recycling by example. People want to recycle, but when they're shown examples, they can learn much more and connect real closely to how important sustainability is. John, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing some of your knowledge. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the work you guys are doing and all those listeners who are out doing the very same thing. Let's keep it going and make our world a better place. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned in this episode. And while you're there, look for a link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. You can hit us up by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love your cards and letters. GreenBiz 350's director is Stephanie Joyce. Elsa Wenzel is our managing editor. We'll be back here next week, or at least I will, for another edition of Green Biz 350. From all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCowan. Thanks for listening. 